I'll just ask you this tonight to bow with me for a word of prayer as we open the Word of God together. Father, thank you again for this time together. What a privilege it is to study together, to be together, to be challenged together, to think about the eternal things uh, together. And Lord, so we uh, are thankful that you're together here with us and that we um, can depend upon you. We are so needy as people. Help us to glean from your word what you would have. Allow your spirit to be upon us, illumine our minds and our hearts, that we might understand you for your glory and because of our Savior Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to our study of John, chapter 18. John's Gospel, chapter 18. And I want to begin tonight by having you follow along as I read for us verses 15 to 18 and then 25 to 27. 15 to 18 and 25 to 27. John says this, And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, But Peter was standing at the door outside. The other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire For it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said therefore to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. We had originally skipped over this part when we were in verses 12 through 24, and I said last week that potentially we would get here this week, and so here we are. And I suppose that when we look at the trial of Jesus Christ and we think about all the details that took place during the trial and we look at all the wickedness that happened and that was perpetuated upon Christ by the hearts that were set upon His destruction, one of the saddest moments that we see in it all is this moment right here in our text tonight. The denial of the Lord Jesus Christ by none other than Peter. Peter, one of his closest men. It's a sad moment for us to even look at. And I suppose that's so sad for us. Because when we read it, we see so much of ourselves in the reaction of Peter on that very night. Or at least I do. I see so much of myself in Peter as he was there on that night. Some time ago, 
in our study here, we study through Psalm 1. Some of you may remember that when we were studying through Psalm 1. And I was thinking about that recently. While that psalm is not directly related to this passage in John's Gospel, I think it is related in an indirect way when we think about what happened with Peter. You might remember Psalm 1 begins this way in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's what Psalm 1 verse 1 says. That's how it begins. And we might even say it this way. It is proof of the foolishness of a man to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. It is to the foolishness of a man. It proves the foolishness of humanity, the foolishness of a heart. To walk in the counsel of wickedness, to stand in the path with sinners and to sit in the seat of scoffers. I think that passage is indirectly related to this text tonight because in many ways it describes what is happening with Peter on that very night. For Peter, being there in the place of the high priest, as it tells us in verse 15 through 18, that was a bad place for Peter to be. And Peter paid the price for being there. I was reading some time ago, Charles Spurgeon. Of course, we all know his name, and some of us say we can't get through a sermon without quoting Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon put it this way concerning this moment with Peter. Here's what he said. Peter was on dangerous ground. When his master was being buffeted, he was trying to make himself comfortable. We read of the high priest's servants that they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them. He warmed himself. He was in bad company and he was a man who could not afford to be in bad company. I think in many ways Spurgeon's right when he says that about what was going on with Peter that night. But... But we also know that there was something else going on that night with Peter, right? Because earlier Jesus had told Peter, it's not recorded in John's gospel, but it is recorded in Luke chapter 22, which is a parallel passage like Matthew 26 and Mark 14. In Luke 22, Jesus told Peter this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So Peter was on very dangerous ground being there, some of which he knew about, and some of which he did not know about. Some was physical, but much that was going on was spiritual. And it's right for us to ask, what does that teach us at the outset? What does that teach us, at least as an overall, overarching principle 
when we read this text, when we look at this narrative, when we see what is going on with Jesus, and then here's this interjection about Peter. What does it teach us at the outset? Well, overall, it tells us that even though Peter was like the ungodly in Psalm 1, standing in the path of sinners, nevertheless, Jesus had prayed for him. And the result from that would be a more faithful Peter after the experience, after he went through it. And so what I want us to do tonight is to learn from Peter's failures. I grew up with three older brothers, the privilege that God gave me to be the youngest in my family. My mother, being almost 80, still calls me her baby. I said, Mom, I'm your youngest She said, you're my baby. I said, well, you can call me that if you'd like, but I'm your youngest. I had three older brothers, and I got to watch my older brothers grow up in life as I was the fourth of three, four boys, and I got to watch their mistakes and, and, and like a good moral kid, try to dodge all the potholes that they stepped in. We get to do that from Peter because it shows us at the very least that even the followers of Christ are not free from sinful guilt in our relationship to Christ. We're not immune to sin. We may not hate Christ like Caiaphas did. We've already seen that. We may not be indifferent to Jesus like we will see when we encounter Pilate. But there are times when we are just like Peter in this text, aren't there? And the question that I have when I look at these kinds of things and I study things like this is that old age-old question that our kids ask us. Why? Why? Well, the radically clear, simple answer is this. Because we are so often too much in love with this world and too enamored with its company. Now that's really the ultimate, simple, clear, radical answer. We oftentimes find ourselves too much in love with the world and too enamored with its company. This is why sometimes we are so sad when we're on the precipice of potential death. We think about, well, I I don't want to leave my family and friends and all these kinds of things. We can understand that in a familiar kind of way, but sometimes it becomes the reality that we just love it here more than we do looking forward to glory. One commentator put it this way, Those that warm themselves with evildoers will soon grow cold toward good people and good things. And those who are fond of the devil's fireside are in danger of the devil's fire. Unquote. I think that's aptly put. Snuggling up to evil is a dangerous proposition for us as believers, and we need to be careful not to do that. So, what can we learn from Peter here? I think the narrative is pretty clear as to the 
flow of what is going on. Jesus has simply been arrested. The, the people have come to him. He has stood before Pilate. And now we get this interlude, if you will, this parenthetical reality back to Peter and what took place with him. So what do we learn from Peter here? Well, I think first, if we are to gain from Peter's failure, we need to first come to grips with the reality of the shock that it's Peter doing this. If you don't read this text and have a little shock in your mouth and your mind about what is going on here, that this is Peter. Right? The shock that it's Peter ought to stun us in some ways, but we need to come to grips with this because sometimes sin in others is a surprising thing. Some of us were recently somewhat shocked recently when we read in a news article of a man named Josh Harris who was this pronounced author in biblical realms. Maybe some of you have read some of his books that were out there, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, don't date the church or stop dating the church. Those are a couple of the titles of his books. Well, recently he, he came out and said, I don't believe that anymore. I'm not a Christian. It was somewhat shocking. We thought this guy was a stalwart of the faith. Sometimes sin in others is a surprising thing. But the reality is it should not be. We should not be all that shocked. Really? And when we read this, we get shocked that it's Peter. But Peter is a leader of the disciples. That shocks us. That shocks us. In other words, this isn't one of the lesser known disciples. This is Peter. This isn't one of the disciples who goes unnamed in the scriptures. This is Peter. We're not surprised if this kind of action comes from a person like, like back in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We're not surprised if Nicodemus does this kind of thing because even back in chapter 3, it was Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. Why? Because Nicodemus didn't want to be seen by others. He, didn't, he feared what others might think if he was cuddling up to Jesus. This is Peter. In fact, the only time Nicodemus made some kind of acknowledgement of Jesus is after he died. When he comes with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Jesus off the cross. So if, if verse 15 of chapter 18 was about Nicodemus, we wouldn't be all that surprised. Someone who wanted to keep his relationship with Jesus a secret thing. Someone who would, would stay away from Jesus. We wouldn't be surprised if that person was to deny Jesus. But this is Peter. This is the bold and courageous disciple of Jesus Christ who says to Jesus, even if all of them fall away because of you, I will never. I will die with you, Jesus. You say, so what's the point? The point is simply this. If Peter could fall in this way, then so can we. If Peter could fall, what's that mean for us? If the strongest leader can fall, then certainly the weakest follower can fall. In fact, it's probably even more so that the strongest are those in the greatest danger. Because they are confident in themselves. 
But before we let ourselves get too hard on Peter, there are several bright things that shine forth in this moment in Peter's life, this dark moment that we can learn from. And I want to I'm going to highlight those first and then kind of backtrack a little bit. There's some shining things here. The first shining thing that we see here in this narrative is this. At least Peter followed Jesus. At least Peter followed Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I mean, when it, he is compared to all of the other disciples who were there with Jesus that night in the garden, at least Peter followed Jesus. You remember when Jesus was arrested? And Jesus, of course, had already told them, you're all going to be scattered. But when Jesus is arrested, all the others, except for an unnamed disciple that's here that we read about in verse 15. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. It was another disciple. Most history says that this was John who was here. John typically would refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I wouldn't be surprised if this was John referring to himself as another disciple. But here they are in the garden, all except this unnamed disciple scatters into the darkness of the night. Most likely running all the way back to probably Bethany across the Kidron Brook, up the mountainside to the other side of the mountain. Why? Because they're all afraid they're going to be arrested. They're all afraid they're going to be tried like Jesus is being tried. But not Peter. Peter initially scatters, but he quickly stops himself, joins up with the unnamed disciple, verse 15 tells us, and follows from a distance. He follows all the way back across the Kidron Brook to Jerusalem through All the arrangements of the unnamed disciple, it says, here's Peter in the place where the trial is happening, where the first preliminary thing is going on. The other disciple, verse 16, tells us, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. And so here is Peter. He's in the courtroom. At least Peter followed So we can at least see that that was not the decision of a coward. That wasn't the decision of someone who was going to just cut and run. Peter failed. Yes, that's true. Peter, here we see the sadness that Peter denies Christ and three times he denies him. He failed in a situation, but he failed in a situation that many wouldn't even try. In other words, and I think this is important for us to remember... Peter failed not because he was a coward, but rather he failed in spite of the fact that he was not a coward. Peter didn't fail because he was a coward. Peter failed in spite of the fact that he wasn't a coward. Maybe we could just hear it said this way. No Christian is immune to failure. No Christian is immune to failure. That doesn't mean that failure is acceptable with God. It just simply means that as a Christian, we still sin. That's what it means. Sometimes it's grievous. And sometimes it's severe in consequential ways. Sometimes our sin is severe enough that the consequences go on for years. 
sometimes a lifetime, at least here on earth. So on a positive note, at least in John chapter 18, at least Peter followed Jesus. That's one bright shining note that we can see in this dark moment. But I think there's a second one. Because while Peter followed, we also know that Peter loved Jesus. Right? We know that. And I believe that's why Peter followed Jesus. Because he loved Jesus. Yes, there are others who loved Jesus. That's true. Mary, who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, who's commended by Jesus because she did not, she, she did it out of a deep sense of love for Jesus. She did it because she was forgiven much, so she was loving much, Jesus said. I, I think that's what we see in Peter as he follows this entourage. Common earthly sense when Jesus is arrested says, go the other direction. That's what common sense says. Common earthly sense. This guy's being arrested. It's a time of trouble. I'm out of here. I'm not hanging around. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't do that. He follows the arresting group. He follows this group of people who are bent on Jesus' destruction. Why? Well, I think because Peter loved Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. He wanted to know what would become of his master. That's why it says that Peter is there. So Peter fails in a situation into which he wouldn't have normally come except for the fact that he loved Jesus. Peter's there because he loves his master. And so here also, I think thirdly, we can learn from him that temptations can be strongest when we are most spiritual. Let me say that again. Temptations can be strongest when we're most spiritual. Kind of reminds us of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, doesn't it? Jesus being led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus, the most spiritual. Jesus, the most close with, with the Father in that very moment. Somewhat even like in the garden when he's praying. Temptation is greatest when we are most spiritual. In other words, we can even think of it like this when we think about Peter. If Peter didn't love Jesus then the temptation for denial would never have had an effect upon him. He didn't love Jesus like he did. The temptation to say, I don't know Jesus, wouldn't even have been a temptation. But it was because Peter loved Jesus. And so Peter followed Jesus when others didn't. And Peter loved Jesus. But I think there's a third light here that we see shining. It's not necessarily recorded for us here in John's Gospel, but it's recorded in, in the others. Peter had a passion for Jesus. Peter had a passion for Jesus, right? Matthew's Gospel tells us that Peter, in the garden, what did he do? He drew the sword, pulls out his sword, and he attacks the lead guard. It says in Matthew 26, a man named Malchus was the lead guard. We know that someone here in this 
text in verse 26, a relative of Malchus was there, standing there. Here is Peter in the garden, pulling out his sword and swinging it and cutting off his ear. If Peter had been more accurate, Malchus might have lost his head, not just his ear. It's true that in that moment, Peter's acting fleshly. Jesus rebukes him for that. He's thinking on temporary terms rather than eternal terms. And Jesus even says to him, don't do that, Peter. And Jesus picks up Malchus's ear and puts it back on his head. But even in that moment, we see a passion in Peter that is being expressed for Jesus. You see Peter's passion for his Lord, a passion that the other ones certainly didn't show if they had it at all. And so here is Peter in this midst of this dark moment in his life, and yet Peter's the one who follows Jesus. Peter follows, I believe, because he loves Jesus, and he even tries to defend Jesus. And then fourthly, there's a bright thing. Peter, Peter's the one who confesses Jesus as the Christ, remember? Back in John chapter 6. In fact, go back there for a moment. John chapter 6, we were familiar with what took place in John chapter 6. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He's up in Galilee at the time. The crowds are there. They're following him. They're listening to him. Jesus feeds the 5,000, miraculously walks across the water at night after the crowd is dispersed, after he feeds them. The people want him the next day. They're wondering where he is. They go to Capernaum to seek him out. They find Jesus. They begin to confront him about who he is in, in one sense. Hey, how did you get here? We were looking for you. They're seeking the wrong kind of food, Jesus tells them. You're not looking for the right things. You need to be after the living bread. Jesus rebukes them, and upon telling them that, what happens? They all leave Jesus. They all leave. And so Jesus turns to the twelve, and he says, Are you going to leave me too? And who speaks up? Who speaks up? But Peter, John 6, verse 68 and 69, right? Verse 66, as a result of this, as a result of what Jesus said, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus says to them, to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. You have words of eternal life. And we have believed it and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Matthew chapter 16 says that Jesus asked the disciples at one point, Who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is Peter's confession. Peter follows Jesus on that night. Peter loves Jesus. Peter is the one who shows passion for Jesus. It's Peter who proclaimed Jesus. Proclaimed who Jesus is. 
And you say, why are you emphasizing all of this about Peter? Because Peter was not a rank and file guy. That's what I'm trying to say. Peter is a leader. And yet Peter fails. Peter's a leader. And Peter falls. And here in John chapter 18, what is so interesting to us, or what we need to notice, is that Peter is failing in the face of very little provocation. Peter's failing in the face of very little temptation. Notice verse 17. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? This is the slave girl. The first one used to tempt Peter is someone who washes the guest's feet who come in the house. Basically, someone in the vernacular of the time was a nobody. Not, no, no significance really whatever. And it seems that it's more of a curious question really, than rather some kind of question with the intent to expose him. I mean, it's almost a curious thing. Whoever it is that's with Peter goes to the doorkeeper and says, let this guy in. And the slave girl, as he's coming in, says, hey, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? Just in a curious kind of way. Peter says, no, I'm not. So listen, because I think this is going on in our minds right now as we think about this. We are saying if Peter could fall, being the strongest, then what chance do I have? I mean, if this is Peter who followed Jesus, Peter who loved Jesus, Peter who had a passion for Jesus, Peter who proclaimed Jesus, then what chance do I have? And what was it that contributed to his failure so that I can learn not to do that in like way? What contributed to Peter's failure in this moment? Well, here are just a couple of things. Just a couple of things that contributed to Peter's fall. First, we could say what contributed to Peter's fall was Peter was overconfident with himself. Peter was overconfident with himself, wasn't he? The text here in John chapter 18 doesn't show us that, but when you... Look at some of the other Gospels, particularly when we were studying through the Gospel of Mark, we saw it. Mark chapter 14, after the Passover meal. Right? Jesus is telling His disciples that they would all be scattered at the arrest and crucifixion. And Peter says, even though all may fall away, I will not. And Jesus, upon that Upon those words of Peter, as Peter was saying those words, Jesus went so far as to describe how Peter would fall. And Peter, in his overconfidence, tells Jesus, No, no, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. No, God, you're not right, I'm right. No, 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 you're not the one going to tell me what's going to happen. I can assure you... I am not going to deny you. And by the way, in the case we think that it was just Peter in his overconfidence, 
The text there says that, and all of them were saying the same thing. All of them were saying the same thing. It wasn't just Peter saying that. All of them said the same thing. And I think there's a lesson there for us. Listen, this is the sinful tendency of all of us Christians when we get a little bit of obedient practice under our belts. We get a little bit of step, a little bit of Christian maturity, a little bit under our belts, a little victory here, a small victory there. And guess what happens? We start to puff ourselves up and say, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty good Christian. We tend to convince ourselves that we are stronger than we actually are. We're just like Peter. Oh, no, Lord. No, no. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fail. All these other people, they might do that, but it's not going to be that way with me. Listen, if, we, if we're going to indulge ourselves in our own, own confidence, overconfidence, if we think that we are not vulnerable because that's never going to happen to me, then we're beyond being wise and being astute. We're already on the precipice of failing. In fact, we're already on our way of failure. I was talking to somebody this week and I was saying, here's the deadly way it's communicated in our words. It may have been like that with you, but it won't be like that with me. Those are deadly words. Those are deadly words. It's going to be different with me. You ever heard that from your teenage kids? Oh, mom and dad, yeah, it happened like that with you. That was what happened in your life. But it'll be different with me. We do that in the Christian realm all the time. Yeah, that may have been the way it trouble came into your life, but that's not going to happen to me. And sometimes we're saying that with an honesty, with an honesty to really work at it and to really try at it. And praise God that, that oftentimes God allows us to not fail. But oftentimes it's just born out of an overconfidence. An overconfidence that says, I can do it. It doesn't matter what God says, I can do it by myself. You say, what's the cure? What's the cure to that? See, here's how Jesus said it. Here's how Jesus gave us a cure. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15. And nothing means nothing. So first of all tonight, beloved, let's never forget this lesson. Overconfidence is the ground from which failure grows. Overconfidence is the ground from which failure grows. Let's not forget that. If we learn something from Peter's life, let's learn that. We cannot be overconfident. Peter was upended by the simplest of things. Number two. Number two. Peter let physical life get in the way of spiritual life. Peter let physical life get in the way of spiritual life. You say, what do you mean? What I mean, first of all, is that Peter didn't pray because Peter was tired. Peter didn't pray because Peter was tired. 
Remember back in the garden when they first entered into the garden? Jesus said, remain here a while and pray. You need to remain alert. The flesh is weak. Spirit is strong. It's an amazing thing that's going on there in the garden because when we think about it from a human perspective, we would think if we are thinking of who Christ truly is, that he is God incarnate, here is Jesus Christ in the garden, he's God, we would think that if anyone didn't need to pray, it would be Christ. But what does that entire section of John show us? What's it say to us? Jesus is praying... And Peter and the other guys are sleeping. They're napping. Peter allowed physical desires to get in the way of spiritual necessity. Let me say that again. Peter allowed physical desires to get in the way of spiritual necessity. In other words, the one who needed to pray more than anything was the one sleeping. And the God-man is the one praying. We know this truth. This isn't new to us. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. And we are all guilty of going to pray as a last resort. Right? We're all guilty of that. We go to pray. Well, at least we can pray... Right? We pray because it's one of the things in our list of solutions, and normally it's down here at towards the bottom. But no, that's not how the Bible describes it. The Bible describes prayer. Prayer is not to be one of the solutions. It is to be an always continual, without ceasing practice, rather than a solution for us. And often we fail when temptation comes because we are not first praying. And we do not pray because we think that it's unnecessary. And so we allow physical things to get in the way of spiritual necessity. More like Peter, we just fall asleep. So Peter is overconfident. Peter... Let's the physical crowd out the spiritual. And then third, and I think this is more metaphorical in this text, just like Peter, we fail because we follow Christ at a distance. We follow Christ at a distance. It's ironic. John doesn't include it here, but all the other Gospels include this. They all say, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, those are the parallel passages. They all say this one little phrase, and Peter followed at a distance. Of course, it's a geographical proximity identifier. That's what it is. It's a descriptor of where Peter was in comparison to where Jesus Christ is in the movement. But I think also metaphorically it teaches us and tells us something interesting about our walks with Jesus Christ. It's good that we follow Christ. That's a good thing. It's good that Peter was a follower of Christ, right? We said that already. One of the shining stars is the fact that Peter at least followed. It's good that we followed Christ. Peter did that when all the others fled. But it was at a distance. Didn't want to be too close by way of 
fear of discovery. You notice it says the slaves and the officers are standing there and having made a charcoal fire for it was cold, they're warming themselves and Peter was with them standing and warming himself. Verse 25, Peter standing, warming himself. Peter still at a distance. Sometimes that's what we do. We follow Jesus at a distance, and I think it contributes to our falling, contributes to our failing. We follow Jesus at a distance. Why? Because we fear being fully identified with Jesus. We've convinced ourselves that if we are close to Jesus, if we are identified with Him too closely, like Peter was trying to avoid, that that's the dangerous place. If we're identified with Jesus, then it's a dangerous place to be, and yet the very opposite is true. The very opposite is the truth. The safest place, the place of greatest security place of the least danger for a fall is right next to Jesus. The Bible tells us what we know to be true, right? The Bible tells us exactly what we know is true. Our exposure is increased when we are with Jesus. It's true. Our exposure is increased when we are with Jesus, but the danger is less. Why? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Right? Yeah, we're more exposed as a Christian because we're following Jesus, but the danger of that is less because we have Jesus. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is guaranteed victory. And so falls happen when we are away, when we're not close. Peter is challenged by a simple slave girl, and he fails. And then Peter is challenged once again, and he fails. By those standing around, by the the sinners that he's hanging out with, by the sinners that he's trying to take care of his physical needs, Peter's there and he's challenged by them. You are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denies it. No, I'm not. Peter's thinking in his heart and his mind, if I say yes, then I'm in danger. And yet that's the most undangerous place to be. Not when we're away from Jesus, but when we're close to Jesus. It's the safest place of all. And when we're away from Jesus, lastly, it's easy to get close to the wicked. When we're away from Jesus, it's easy to get close to the wicked. That's the implication, really, of verse 18 and verse 26. Slaves and the officers are standing there having made a charcoal fire for it's cold. They're warming themselves and Peter is also with them. Peter is standing with them. Verse 26 says, One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one who ear Peter cut off said, 
Didn't I didn't see you in the garden with him? Peter's with them. And in verse 26, he's asked about being with Jesus. What happens? Peter's with them. He's asked about being with Jesus. And what happens? He denies knowing Jesus. Peter denies it for a third time. Listen, here's, here's the lesson again that we heard this morning in 1 John. Here it is again. When we are with the world, it's easy to sin. When we're with the world, it's easy to sin. When we're hanging out with the crowd, when we're doing the things with the crowd, when we're with them, it's easy to sin. We are to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. In the world, but not of the world. In other words, we are to be with Christ in the midst of the world, not with them whose culture it is. So what happens when we've failed, just like Peter? What happens? Well, guilt comes rushing in, doesn't it? That's what happens. We sense guilt. The other texts say Jesus looked at Peter when the cock crowed. Peter knew at that very moment he was guilty. He knew both experientially and internally. And the only cure for Peter was to repent. That was the only cure. And that's what Peter did. That's what Jesus had prayed for. But I'm praying for you that when you return, that's the idea. When, when Peter repented, Peter returned. Turn from your sin and return to being with Jesus. That's the cure. You see, when you're with them, get away from them and go back with Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, entrusting Himself to the one who judges righteously. You see, it's true, right? Sin brings consequences. Sin brings consequences. Some of those consequences remain with us for a long time. In fact, you may have failed like Peter has, like Peter did. You may have failed like that a hundred times. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Here's the same. Turn to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me now. Stop following them. Follow me now. And you will find grace in your time of need. That's what Peter did. Peter failed. This is Peter. Shock. Not really. Not really. Peter's just like us. We're just like Peter. Peter overconfident, think we've got it all wired, think we're not vulnerable, buddying up too closely with the world, away from Jesus. Return to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Be with Jesus. And you won't deny Jesus. 
We'll get more of the trial next time. More of the trial next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. Just a brief glimpse into your servant, Peter. Such a staunch, staunch example of how easy it is to fall. And yet, by your grace, by your mercy, he repented and turned back to you and has become one of the heroes, really, of the faith staunchly stood up amongst the crowds and said, this Jesus whom you crucified is the one you must believe in, is why we say what we say. Lord, we don't want to fail. We don't want to, in those easiest of moments, not say something that we should say for fear that we might be identified with you. Well, Lord, we've done that. We're honest, surveying our heart. We know we've done that. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for strengthening us by the Spirit. Lord, grant us the grace to walk by the Spirit. That we might be bold like Peter was after he repented and turned. Give us that boldness. Allow us to claim Christ no matter what. Because you are the Christ. And it's here in your word so that we might believe that there's life in you. Lord, thank you for that message tonight. Help us to apply these things for your, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.